Hey all, and welcome to Own Rooted, brought to you by Olmsted Wine Co. Our guest today is Joe Swick, a negociant winemaker based in Oregon. While many of the producers you've had on the show are favorites of mine, no one winemaker's had more impact on my cellar work than Joe has. Joe's unique trajectory across 20 years of winery work has helped him develop methods that mark all of his wines with a distinctive and delectable quality. Joe and I have had many conversations about the creative side of the work, but this time we got to greenwashing, the trouble with Zero Zero Wines, and headless guitars? talking about wine and wine growing organic growing and it's it's effect on the end product what does that translate into the wine or the quality of the wine and mm-hmm. and and also on, a, on a, maybe a separate topic how the word organic kind of is just thrown around there and is is seems to be sort of used as, as kind of like a like a marketing gimmick how i used to see back when natural food stores were starting to sell organic produce my first job was working in nat- natty food stores in the mid '90s, and now you know. I actually, I just went into a Target to grab something, and um, and they have now they're selling organic avocados. So it's it's weird. Uh, Twenty five years later to see that happening mm. now. The the word organic being used kind of as a, as a marketing term. I mean, what does it mean? Um, to me, organically grown grapes are always going to make better grapes into wine. So that's that's why I value org- organic farming is that... Can you, can you explain why you think that? Because I, I, sure. people take that for granted, and obviously I agree, but um, I do think that's the kind of thing that is rarely just assumed to be in total consensus. If you could just talk about that a little bit, I think that would be helpful for folks. When, when you're converting a, a vineyard to organic, there's several years of, of kind of shock, especially depending on how the, the vineyard was being farmed before the transition. And it takes some time for, for the vineyard to get it, get used to being farmed that way. It's a different way of farming, obviously, to, to the vineyard. And the vines, um, I think, probably come into balance and do what they want. And um, oftentimes you, you have less yields. And I do think that yields do have an effect on wine and wine quality to an extent depending on what kind of wine you're trying to make. So with organic farming, more often than not, you're cutting down your yields per acre. And I think more often than not, that also results in higher quality wine. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the main reason that I like organic farming. Some of the other side benefits are, yes, um, the, the chemical use or the, the, the lack of chemical use. I totally believe in that. I think there are also a lot of uh, things about organic farming that are not really talked about as far as um, the use of copper sulfate, absurd amounts of, of, of sulfur dioxide, yeah. um, the, the labor, the safety of our, our workers out in the vineyard when they're spraying these, you know, week after week sometimes, and, um, and then the carbon footprint on that. And um, if, if a vineyard were to find a spray that they just needed to apply one time and it happened to be a synthetic fungicide, that had a short half-life and, and, and dissipated within, you know, X amount of seconds or time or whatever. I, I, I'd almost lean towards doing that and then having, not, uh, have, having a vineyard that's very responsibly farmed 
and not be quote unquote organic. Yeah, I mean this and, is this um, is a subject that's very very dear to my heart. Copper um, accretion is especially problematic and likely to return to an ionic state in clay soils and wet conditions. And that's what I've got on my farm. And so, you know, I'm I'm in this sort of situation where, it, you know, it really feels like damned if you do or damned if you don't. And whenever I try to have the conversation with people, it seems like there are, there are of course, some folks that are trying to find new solutions to this. But um, it seems more often than not people and even folks, you know, that have a reputation for being very agriculturally oriented in the wine world. There are people in that camp that they spin lines like, well, if you farm biodynamically, then the copper breaks down, which obviously is not possible because it's an element. And they'll say, oh, well, we get it tested and it, you know, it's not in our soil. It's like, well, then it's being, you know, it's it's going with the runoff. It's going somewhere. And it does bring up this issue of why are synthetic chemicals necessarily bad? Are they always bad? How do we actually draw the distinction? Because the simple binary, I think, was important for a moment, but we've outgrown it. With the vineyards, some of the vineyards that I'm working with now, herbicide use or synthetic herbicide use, exactly. I, I don't like in any of my vineyards and I choose mm. not to work with vineyards that use that. That's kind of the defining line there as far as uh, the vineyards I work with. Mm-hmm. Um, but but it's in the Willamette Valley, it seems to be more um, with disease pressure as far as botrytis and, and powdery mildew and uh, and fungus fungicide uh, applications are are where often where there are vineyards that are that could be organic but they're they're choosing to work with a synthetic um, topical uh, yeah. fungicide and you know what what is sustainable is it su- sustainable for them as a farmer to to use an application like that on let's say you know a 75 acre farm of, of, of all vines like and you have a, a high high disease pressure for let's say powdery mildew are you going to risk losing uh, 75 acres of vines yeah just because you want to be organic and you know you you pay for all that that brings up a, a question that in the wine world the natural wine world especially i think natural wine drinkers and and professionals especially those that have been you know around for a while tend not to expect certification from your perspective, you know, how important do you think certification is? How how actually meaningful is it? I have several vineyards that are less than two acres. They're about an acre mm-hmm. and a half each, one in the Columbia Valley and one in the Yamhill Carlton uh, AVA in Oregon. And to go through all that for an acre and a half vineyard that, you know, they farm themselves literally by hand, mm-hmm. there's no reason for them. They don't feel like there's a reason for them to do that. And so they both have had certification in the past, but now they're just saying, you know, like, I'm just, I'm going to continue farming as, as I have, but I'm not going to do the, the whole certification thing anymore. I, again, I think it, it comes down to money. It's, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a way for organic certification to make money. Mm-hmm. And it also gives you that stamp of approval that you can, you know, you can charge more for your grapes or, or your wine possibly. I don't think the people that really are wanting to farm responsibly, I don't think they're trying to blow smoke uh, up, up anyone's backside. You know, um, <laughs> I, I really think that people who are wanting to farm uh, responsibly are. And, and plus when you're in a, in a person in my position where I don't own any vineyards, I just buy grapes. Mm-hmm. A lot of these relationships I've had with these growers have been since I started with my brand 10 years ago. And, you know, I know them really well. So 
I, I trust my farmers and um, I'm, I'm out there and, and you know, you can, you can kind of tell by looking at a vineyard what's going on for the most part. Can you talk about, you know, what the experience has been like working with those growers and cultivating those relationships and, you know, where some of them started and how they've developed and some lessons you've learned about managing those relationships a little more effectively? Well, in the Pacific Northwest, most of the farmers that I work with started it as as kind of a hobby or had family land that they converted farms like apples uh, or or olives or whatever, depending on the area, uh, hazelnuts over to grapes. And so they're not necessarily coming at it from an enological kind of from from a winemaking background, at least. Yeah. Farming is their their main background. So. Trying to find a balance between um, winemaker wants and needs for making the best wines that they can, but also making sure that they're they're able to sustain. I wouldn't I wouldn't be anything without my vineyards. I can't do anything without them. They're yeah. the most important key to to my business. The sort of negotiant thing is totally opaque to most customers. I don't think they understand what that means, what that work really is. And what yeah. that means for your workflow and sort of how you're contextualizing things and like how difficult making plans is and all of that. I think that knowing the, the industry and, and being in it for a while before you get into, before you want to start, if, if someone were wanting to start their own winery and, and you're out looking for fruit sources, being in the industry before you start doing that definitely gives you a leg up. And it also mm-hmm. gives you a leg up in, in a lot of different ways, planning your own uh your own winery and how you want to do things, your marketing and all that. But it can be kind of daunting to uh, if if you're just getting into the industry and don't haven't worked in it beforehand to to find fruit sources. It's definitely very word of mouth. Like when I was starting, I'd I'd call up someone and say, hey, it's Joe. I worked uh, with your grapes at wherever winery. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I remember you from 10 years ago. Mm hmm. Uh, say, you know, I have my own label now and I'm interested in some some Pinot Noir and wanted to see if you had any extra for the 2022 vintage. So that's kind of how I started out. And then from there, it was just word of mouth. Other growers saying, hey, I have a friend up in uh, the Columbia Gorge who's growing some organic Shannon. Mm-hmm. Uh, let me give you their phone number. So all of those... Um, a lot of those relationships ha- happened be- before I started Swick Wines. And, and then it's just maintaining relationships with them. Um, cost of fruit has been rising a lot in the last mm-hmm. 10 years. So just making sure that that they're able to sustain as well as you. I try to prepay for a lot of my grapes so that it helps with the expense of farming. Mm-hmm. Uh, be- before uh, harvest, you know, labor costs uh, are going up and that's that's a big cost for vineyards. And so to kind of uh, offset some of that cost, often I'll put down a deposit on the next year's uh, grapes, which usually isn't common. I think people are getting better now, but... You mentioned uh, the cost of fruit has increased. Can you put that in, in dollar amounts? I don't, I don't know what average price of uh, Pinot Noir and, and Willamette Valley is right now, but I'd say it's gone up probably on, on my fruit since 2017, let's say five years. Uh, it's probably gone up about 50%. Wow. Your, your, your bottle pricing has not reflected that um, too, too much. Yeah. Um, I've been increasing production kind of steadily year after year. And mm. now we're kind of capped out around, depending on yields, five or 6,000 cases a year. And so um, at that production level, I can, I can divert some of, some of the wine that I make and kind of into larger production blends 
like the Bring It, for example, you know that that takes up a majority of my production every year. So that helps offset with uh, the cost with that. I don't use foils on my on my mm-hmm. any of my wines. Mm-hmm. That's another cost. I try not to use heavy glass. So there's some ways that you can cut costs down on the total total bottle cost, but um, fruit is definitely the main cost of the wine. You'll you'll see bottle cost increasing if you haven't already. So let's um let's let's back up just a little bit. We were talking a little bit about organics and how you know perhaps there's a little more gray area than people acknowledge. I do think that sort of plays on the natural wine phenomenon in a way that's sort of important because it it both seems more and less dogmatic at once. What does natural wine mean to you? What do you think is really important in it? And how do you conceptualize this thing? Do we need certification? Do we need to just have different conversations with customers? I think that it would help to have a little bit more of uh, some basic education about winemaking in general and just understanding some of the basic processes and, and, and why why this happens when you do this or when mm-hmm. you don't do this. So what, what natural wines are to me, and I, and I don't I don't like using that term directly very often, but what it, what it means to me is grapes fermented and just that's it and turned into wine. In the in the in the traditional way method that we've always made wine, whatever that is, there's so many different ways, but not, and nothing added to it and, and nothing taken away. So zero filtration, no sulfur, nothing. It's just grapes that have been fermented, and that's it. As far as the farming goes, you know, I think that's very much up to you too. I like I'm not going to like say that um, just because a, a farm was was nuked with a bunch of um, Roundup that those grapes are completely, um, you know, devoid of any character or anything, but you know, they do taste a certain way and they do, they do make wines in a certain way because of the way they're farmed. And and I'm like, kind of going back to what we were saying before, like organic farming makes better grapes, more concentrated grapes, which make better wine. Yeah. So, so what, what natural wine is to me is just, um, just grapes with, with Mm -hmm. nothing added to it, nothing taken away. So as far as that goes, I, I I'll go on record and say, I don't make, or sorry, I don't make natural wines. When when you say you wouldn't call your wines natural, can you, can you articulate, just sort of clarify the way that you're delineating? Because, you know, um, as much as I know about your process, like in my categorization of natural wine, everything you do, do fits. But just so listeners yeah. are getting an accurate understanding, like what you mean, yeah. how does that distinction play out? The pinnacle of my getting into natural wines was probably about 2015, 2016. Oh, wow. And that was when when most of, uh, as far as my brand, um, mm-hmm. and that was when a majority of my wines were zero sulfur. I did a couple of cuvées, I think, with a little bit of sulfur. But I was really, really liking the, the zero sulfur added thing, the, the way the wines tasted. But I started to have some problems with Acetobacter, with high VAs in my wines, some wines getting reductive in bottle. And that may or may not have been from zero sulfur use. That may have been some from poor racking. And uh, Britannomyces and Mouse. Before we continue, I'd like to take a little time to speak to the faults Joe just mentioned, as these are complex and there's some misleading information out there. First, Joe refers to Acetobacter and volatile acidity. He's talking about a single fault here in which Acetobacter, an aerobic bacteria, metabolizes alcohol into acetic acid, aka volatile acidity, aka vinegar. 
I've noticed that volatility is among the more frequently misunderstood descriptors, and that it is often thought to be a subjective aesthetic assessment to describe high-acid wines or wines with disjointed acidity. It isn't. Volatile acid refers to acetic acid specifically. And then there's reduction. This is a little more complicated in some respects, as it refers to an array of volatile hydrogen sulfide compounds. There are a number of reasons a wine can become reductive, but you can think of this as a consequence of there not being enough oxygen in the winemaking process. Reduction is a set of aromatic faults that can run the gamut from obviously sulfury to more rubbery. Like volatility, the word reduced is sometimes misconstrued to be an aesthetic assessment to describe a wine that is closed or shut down. Next, there's Brettanomyces or just Brett. Brett is a yeast strain associated with more animalistic or band-aid-y characteristics in wine. Calling it a fault is highly subjective, and I would argue that there are places in the world where Brett is an important part of the terroir and regional style. It can definitely get out of hand, but bready wines are just as likely to inspire as they are to offend, so I tend to just think of it as another variable, rather than a true fault. And finally, Joe mentioned Mouse, the dreaded specter of wineries. Mouse is a confusing name used to describe a confusing fault that is in fact a few different faults that are all slightly mysterious and easily conflated with the wrong thing. Very helpful description, right? So-called mousy off-flavor is mostly attributed to a handful of flavor compounds that create crackery, oaty, bready flavors. The most egregious of these oxidize unattractively. While the previous three faults can be found to elevate a wine in particular scenarios, mouse is only ever a blight on the experience. There are a number of problems with mouse, most notably that the prevalent culprits are compounds that are detectable by humans at a ratio of about seven parts per billion. That's billion with a B. The second challenge is that the flavors associated with mouse are not unlike flavors found in lazy or protein-rich wines. I have many times seen overeager tasters slander a perfectly delicious wine because it contained characteristics that aesthetically abutted mousy off flavor. This fault is commonly attributed to lactobacilli, but I have also seen a study that connects mouse to the presence of certain strains of Brettanomyces. It isn't a clear thing, and at a detection threshold of 7 parts per billion, very little needs to be amiss to damn a wine. Many people need to train their palates to identify mouse. Some folks like it, and others are instinctively appalled by even the faintest whiff. It's not a simple problem, and I would advise professionals and consumers alike to regard the producers of occasionally mousy wines with some empathy. Seven parts per billion people. Be kind. And a lot of the times that uh, that I was tasting these wines with zero sulfur, more often when I was in, in New York tasting them at wine bars, a lot of them were starting to resemble kombucha and uh, vinegar and, and cheese and salami and, and mouse and, and having these other flavors that I don't really associate with what I think of as wine. And so it's it's more of a personal thing, I guess, with me. You know, I, I grew up on Cote de Rhone's and Nebbiolo's, Burgundy, Champagne, Madeira's, Chablis. That's that's what got me into wine initially. And so that that's where I kind of go from when I'm thinking about the, making the wines that I want to drink. Mm. I like wine that tastes like wine. <laughs> and and to me, when I'm tasting something that doesn't taste like what I think of as wine is just all it takes is just a dash of sulfur 
at, at some point in, in the process, I would rather do that to a wine rather than, you know, be so dogmatic about, about sulfur use. What I think of as natural wines are wines just with, with zero sulfur added and nothing mm-hmm. done to them. Yeah. Um, and yeah, now, now the wines that, that I make, uh, I do add a little bit of sulfur, uh, usually right before bottling. No, about the process and less about the actual like end product because mm. I, I I try to make a clean wine at the end when I'm when I'm making zero sulfur wines and sometimes I don't succeed. There is this um, strong pressure on producers to be totally puristic, but then when you end up with a mousy wine, there's almost like the way it's it's discussed afterwards. People are like offended. You know, it's this like assault on them personally that you would, you know, deign to make such a mistake. It seems very intolerant of producers, particularly when, you know, as you're describing it, like it's really high risk, high reward. What is it like to make that decision when you're, you know, you're looking at a lot and you're like, I'm going to go without sulfur um, on this. Or you discover a bottle of yours out there in the world that, you know, you tasted it in the winery and it was fine. And then six months later, you're in a bar somewhere and you try a bottle and it's and it's, you know, in a rough spot. Like, what does that make you think? It makes me feel very disappointed in myself for for not being a little bit smarter when before the wine was going in a bottle. And uh, there are things that are out of your control. You know, every winemaker, especially if you make a lot of different wines, which I do, I'll I'll have sometimes 40 different wines every year. Whoa. So the 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 chance of messing something up is pretty high at that point so yeah that was some of the growing pains that i had uh, back when i was talking about how uh, when i was really into natural quote-unquote natural wines 15 and 16s and and um having you know people send back wine uh or tasting my wine six months later and and having it completely taste nothing like it did when i went in a bottle and you know i think you get maybe one or two chances when you get a reputation for making messed up wines and then after a few goes, then, you know, it, it damages your, your business that you kind of have to win back people and reassure them that you're, and depending on people's palates. But I think that, that, that more and more people want to have their cake needed too. They, they want mm. wines that check all these certain, tick all these boxes, you know, it's got to be zero, zero, it's got to be zero sulfur. And um, you just, you put out, you put a lot on the line by, by making wines that way. And there's, I think the best way to do it would be to do it if you did it in small amounts. If if you were only making 200, 500, at the most, a thousand cases of wine. If I was making a thousand, only a thousand cases of wine, I would feel safe doing a zero zero, hundred percent winery, no problem. Mm-hmm. But because I could do every single thing myself, mm-hmm. I could go around right. in the winery and make sure every vessel I had was topped. Completely to the top. I could top twice a week and make sure there was no headspace. I'd be right there. I could do everything myself. You can do that, but you got to have another job to support yourself. Like yeah. that's that's hobby. If you want to do it as a career, you have to get us to a certain volume. What would you say that threshold is? I'd say about twenty five hundred to do it on your own, and even then, you'd have to um, you'd have to be pretty uh, frugal. I had a I had a day job up until. 2018 working for another winery oh wow and uh just as an assistant winemaker so from from 13 until 2018 i was also working for another winery and um that's actually where i met uh one of my partners here at the winery um maureen eden she and i have been working together since uh 2015 so we we worked together at another job 
and then I left in, in 18 to focus on Swick Wines full time. And then they uh, they moved over with me, Maureen. That's so, awesome. So, so you had we, like we, a pretty strong working dynamic that you could just kind of like slip back into rather than having to build it up from scratch. Yeah. So getting to know all my quirks and and the things that that I do and and I don't and and also we work at a very old kind of rundown winery. So there there are a lot of things that that pertain only to working at uh, Medici Vineyard where I make uh, my wines. Yeah, we're a crew of three. We all work together and Audie Smith. So it's myself, Maureen and Audie all work together in the cellar. That's a lot of wine for three people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, with, with, with zero sulfur wine, I think, I think it's really hard to do on a large scale. The people that do do it, you know, like some of the, some of those no sulfites added wines that I, that I've seen in like Whole Foods or or places like that. um, I think that there's an enology trick of some sort where you can run it through something that, that basically just like eliminates any anything microbial and then mm. they filter it you know fil- filter yeah. out everything that's another thing that i'd like to like touch on too infiltration and wines like mm-hmm. it, you know is that natural or not you know I, I i've noticed some some people within the you know low manipulation kind of movement with wine i've, I've noticed a lot of them filtering wines you know and mm. a lot, most of it looks like a course kind of maybe like 10, 15 micron, which is basically just getting some of the big mud clumps and globules out of the wine. But I mean, you know, that's that's another thing too, is just what is, you know, what is natural? What is natural about training a, a vine up onto a, a trellis uh, or, <laughs> you know, the house we live in or the, the phones we use or the mm-hmm. cars we drive? Like, I, I really don't think wine is a natural thing. I think mm-hmm. they're there might be some other things that are closer to what is natural, like like animals running across a field or something like that. <laughs> you know? But um, like wine, well, wine wouldn't be here without the without the the human brain. Yeah, you know. So it's it's a man made thing. It's manipulation. I wish there was a better word or a better way for us to describe these kind of wines because I don't think there's anything natural about them or the process in which we mm. make them. But mm. there there's there's certain things. There's it's a certain style that we make them in that um, gives certain flavors and and it's a style of wine. And I wish there were a better way to characterize it. Bouncing out of that, you know, you've worked in a lot of different places, both, you know, domestic and abroad, you know, across the wine spectrum. Could you sort of talk about your own evolution of, you know, your values in wine and like what were the aha moments that brought you to working the way that you do now, regardless of what umbrella term we, you know, included under? I I started my wine journey at, at the retail level, helping out in the wine department of a natural food store when I was 21. And that was that was when I, I started tasting wine and meeting winemakers from Oregon in the Willamette Valley who were coming in to drop off their, their orders and speak with the, the wine department. And then decided that's what I wanted to study and go to school for. And um, I started interning at that point. Um, I started with Owen Rowe, Washington, Oregon um, producer. And that's actually how I got into Washington wines. And that's kind of you know, the, the connection there was my, mm. my first vintage. So started working harvests. At that time, I was really into the Wine Spectator and Points and um, <laughs> big, big jammy Merlot Cabernet from Washington State with with a nice dollop of oak on it. And mm-hmm. um, 
that was what I was really into, and Big Zins, Zinfandels. So th- those producers were kind of what I was interested in uh, in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, and uh, you know, a lot of these these wineries have evolved since then. But at that at that time, it was big, uh, high, you know, lots of oak structure wines that I was into. Um, That's so funny, given what you make now. <laughs> yeah. And um, went and worked for those producers, some of those producers that were kind of in line with that, and got a taste of Sonoma County, making Russian River Pinot Noir. And then um, I wanted to learn more about sparkling wine. So I spent three years over in Australia in uh, the Yarra Valley and uh, for a year, and then Tasmania for two years. Uh, making cool. mostly sparkling wines. So kind of got into the, the cold climate thing going over there. And then um, then after that, I was in um, uh, central Otago, New Zealand, in, Mal- in Marlborough, New Zealand. I was working uh, at, a, at a factory making a lot of Sauvignon Blanc for a bit. And then spent a year and a half only in the vineyard working for Feltner Road, um, mm-hmm. just learning more about viticulture and uh, biodynamics. And then after that, that, that was a total of 13 harvests there that I just mentioned. And yeah. um, I went, went over to Europe and worked in Barolo, Barbaresco, and uh, I worked. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, I worked for Chiretto and in, in, um, huh. in Alba. Very cool. And then um, kind of around that time, two different ty- two, two different stints. I worked for Nieport, Vinyush, and, uh, and Nadoro, and then Luis Siabra later on. And so that was a total of 15 different stints that I did with people before I started Swick Lines. So many diverse experiences in there. Yeah. And the one that was definitely the standout was going to Portugal in 2010. Why? Working for working for Dirk. And um, a lot of it was cultural, the, the methods and everything. Like being in the Doro was like, was like stepping back a, a couple hundred years. Everything was so traditional. And then also, I think it just took tasting a lot of the old world wines. Like working for Dirk, Dirk has an amazing palate and always shares a lot of, of different wines, not only Portuguese wines, but uh, wines from everywhere during harvest. So being able to taste with Dirk and then his philosophy on on wine and the wine business and winemaking. I mean, he's he's had the biggest influence on me. Uh, more than anyone as far as the wine business hmm. goes. And then I would oh. say more specifically, enologically, Luis Siabra, his his winemaker at that time, who now has his own thing in the Doro called Luis Siabra Vinyush. Be, being willing to take chances, believing in what you what you do, not being skewed by what other people say about what you should or shouldn't be doing. One one big thing for me, it seems so simple now, but at the time was was I thought was risky, was using stems, using all stems mm-hmm. in your red wines, skin maceration. And you know, we're talking like 2010, so it was that that was all a little bit well skin maceration, especially with with white wines, was a little bit more new to me. Yeah, being willing to take chances, work a little bit more traditionally, you know, foot stomp instead of uh, plunging your ferments, being willing to work with lower sulfur levels, not filtering. But I, I think, yeah, the biggest thing is just believing in yourself and trusting your own palate and um, not trying to make wines, you know, according to the way that, I don't know, your, your customers might want them or something that's a fad or anything like that. Yeah. So it was that experience at Newport that really changed changed my my thought process as far as wines, and they they've had a huge influence on on me and the way that my wines taste now. As far as natural wine goes, though, it would probably be more tasting with producers in France. Um, I spent a lot of time in France or in Europe, sorry, 
between 2010 and 2015. So I was in Europe about half of the year during those five years. And like tasting with, uh, let's see, tasting with Simone, Simone, Simone Busser, Simone Bisset, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Kaors, uh, the Malbec producer, um, Zero Sulfur. That was kind of one of the first aha moments. Actually, mm-hmm. no, it wasn't. Let's bet. When I was working with Costa Brown, meeting uh, Alice firing at a at a house party, though I didn't know her name was Alice or who she was or anything. She was just a person at a party mm-hmm. at that time. Um, she tasted me on a on a, on a Couturier Carignan. Mm. I think that was, that was like the first natural wine that I can really remember ever tasting. So yeah, I tasted my first like I guess natural wine with Alice sometime in the mid two thousands in in Healdsburg, California. <laughs> but I didn't I didn't didn't realize it until years later getting into natural wine so my, i put, really got a taste for those i would say probably around 2011 simone Busset, um julian labay mm. and the jura um he was telling me about van nature and i didn't really understand what that meant and so um it was tasting with producers more specifically in france because the natural wines weren't really happening even at that time in portugal for the most part i think that was really where i got turned on to natural wines was to, was just um meeting so many producers in uh, in Europe. Yeah, and then I came back to Oregon and kind of wanted to start my own thing with Peter Noir. That's mm-hmm. kind of how it got started. Okie dokie. We wrapped up by talking about other things Joe's excited about. And I'll warn you that he and I get into nerding out about prog rock and guitars and stuff, and it might get like a teensy bit inaccessible, so sorry, not sorry. Things that excite me, as far as the wine industry goes, is I'm I'm excited to try uh, wines from from starting producers um, who are working in newer climates. Um, I, I haven't tried them yet, but I'm interested in trying some of the uh, wines from new producers in Vermont. That I've been hearing about. <laughs> including you, <laughs> just uh, like new grapes, new climates, mm-hmm. um, maybe, maybe people that have, that have mentored with, with some people, you know, doing their own thing. That's always exciting. And I really like, I'm really getting in as far as alcohol goes. I'm, I'm kind of kind of tired of wine, but um, sake is always interesting. Sometimes oh, I really yeah. like Makoli, a Korean oh, yeah, uh, yeah, restaurant. Sure. Um, Hana's Makoli is something that I've really, that's been one of my favorite things to get into over the last couple of years. Oh, Oh, nice. uh, I like what they're doing. And then uh, kind of just just taking breaks from alcohol in general. Um, mm-hmm. My partner and I have really been getting into tea. Oh, yeah. What are your favorite teas? That's actually tea is how I got into yeah. wine in the first place. Just keeping it super simple and specific for me, at least uh, at this point, and just Japanese green tea. And then trying to explore different parts of the Pacific Northwest in California that uh, that I haven't been to. Traveling more in the United States, even mm. though I mean, I just I just got back from two months in Europe, so I got that got that out of my system. But um, <laughs> good, uh, you know, outside of what I do at work, it's just spending time with my family. I have, I have a big mm. family, and you know, my partner, and that's and and their family, and that's what occupies most of my time. Oh, I listen great. to a lot of music, progressive rock and jazz, jazz fusion, math rock, stuff like that. Who are you into? Um, King, King Crimson would of be course. a big influence. Um, early Genesis I like as far as oh, yeah. rock. Chikoria, uh, sure. Al Dimiola, Return to Forever. Yeah, I started picking I started playing guitar because of uh, Return to Forever. Romantic okay, Warrior, yeah. man, that changed everything for me. <laughs> yeah, um, Alan Holdsworth uh, yeah. is something, someone I've really been geeking out on a, a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, there, I go through phases where I listen to a lot of ambient music. 
music. So a lot of Brian Eno and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh, uh, and like uh, Vaporwave and Chillwave, kind of like um, like soft rock um, electronic music I've really been getting into. Oh, cool. Very cool. Do you still, I, 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 I remember you, um, there's a while there where you're posting a lot of, uh, photos on Instagram from earlier in your life and a whole bunch of them, you were, you were playing guitar. Are you still getting to, uh, getting to play at all? I do. Yeah. I try to do that. That's kind of my, my way of, of winding down Yeah. when I, when I get, when I get home from work, if I'm in Oregon. Yeah. I, I, I bought a signature, a Kiesel Alan Holdsworth headless. Oh, guitar. you have a headless guitar? Yeah. Oh man, I've always wanted a headless guitar. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I like it a lot. So, um, buying some new pedals for it and effects, and trying to just kind of trying to find my own sound and practice scales and learn guitar. That's awesome, man. And then, uh, and then I have an eight-string um, alembic bass. Oh, so cool. Doubled. Doubled four, four, four two strings. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so those John are Paul such Jones. cool looking. Uh, I oh. love the uh, the aesthetic those instruments have. Is just is so nifty. So yeah, I definitely blow off some steam doing that after a long day at the winery. And then, like I said, just I've, I have um, I have a lot of nieces and nephews to keep up with. And are they all uh, sort of local around you, or you is that part of your your traveling? I have a niece in Seattle, and then several nieces in. Jersey City and two nephews in uh, in the Bronx in Riverdale and then uh, you know my partner's family is in San Francisco so uh, that keeps me pretty occupied and, uh, mm-hmm. when I come to the East Coast you know instead of doing market visits now it's kind of more just uh, seeing them that's awesome yeah spending time with them that's yeah, great family's a great I'm answer in. to that thanks for tuning in and thanks to Joe for joining us you can follow us on Instagram at Olmsted Wine and check out olmstedwine.com for articles, producer write-ups, and our monthly newsletter. Till next time.